this is Tolly Wilkins of Captivate Church, and we're so glad you've joined us on our podcast today. This is one way that we can take our message for Baltimore all across the world. We pray that today encourages you, inspires you to become the man or woman that God's designed you to be. Pastor, he's been walking us through this series, We the Church. We the Church. And it's been an amazing series. Amazing. But now I have the privilege of continuing in the same lane, but I want to look at the church from a different perspective. See, Pastor, he's been showing us who we are and what we do as a church. But now I want to look at it from the perspective of what happens or what it looks like when we operate and move as a church. Because God has set some things in place which causes the church to be unstoppable. And his plan for his church is for us to be unstoppable. And if we're looking at it from that perspective, his church, yes, it's your church, yes, it's our church if we're making it personal. But when it all boils down to is that it's his church. And if the church belongs to someone who's unstoppable, if the head of the church is unstoppable, then the church is unstoppable. And God has set some things in place to ensure that we are. My title today is Unstoppable. Unstoppable. And if you're looking for a a subtitle, if you're taking notes, hashtag the church. Unstoppable, hashtag the church. And where we're picking up today, it's not our... Uh, main text, but what we're going to do is we're going to use it to lay the foundation, and then hopefully when it's all said and done, God allows us to align the two texts with each other, this text and our main text. But first, we're going to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you first, God, just thanking you, God, for just allowing us back into your presence. I feel you so strongly right now, God. I ask that you to just continue to throw your weight around this place, bullet the atmosphere, allow my mouth to be your mouth, my words to be your words, my spirit to be your spirit. Decrease me, O God, so the people of God may see you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. All the people of God said, amen. Okay, so Jesus poses his disciples a question, right? And usually when Jesus poses a question, there's usually a lesson in the answer or in the question itself. But he poses them a question. He says, who does men or who do men say that I am? Some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So Jesus is like, okay. Since you know what everybody else is saying, since you're in everybody else's business, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Now, we know the Holy Spirit is the one that gives revelation, but this was before the Spirit. This was before Pentecost Sunday. So if Peter received this type of revelation before being filled with the Spirit, I can only imagine the type of revelation we would receive since we've already been filled if we rely on the Spirit. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. 
and on this rock I will build my church. Now this here is a play on words because Peter's name means rock. And Jesus says, upon this rock. And for that reason, a lot of times when we look at this text, we look at it through the lens as if Jesus is saying the church is built on Peter. We look at it through the lens as if Jesus is saying that Peter is the rock. Understand, Peter may be a rock, but he's not the rock. Isaiah said that Jesus is a precious cornerstone. He's a precious cornerstone. In fact, Peter himself said we are living stones and Jesus is the cornerstone. Besides, why would God who cannot fail build his church on someone who can? Side note, if you think the church is built on you, if you think it won't run without you, if it won't move without you, we all will fall short of the glory of God. Which means we all will have some shaky times and the church is not built on a shaky foundation. It's built on a firm foundation, which is Jesus. But look at what Jesus said. He said, I will build my church. Everybody say, I will. And the reason I want you to lock into I will is because this is twofold. First, I will expresses that it's his will, that it's God's will. It's his plan to build his church. Many are the plans of a man, but only the plans of the Lord will prevail. It's his plan. And when God plans to do something, it will come to pass. Secondly, Jesus didn't say, I hope. I built my church. He didn't say I might build my church. He said, I will build my church. This is a promise. And God has fulfilled every single promise he has given. So what that tells us is that if God has fulfilled every promise and he says, I will build my church, then that means the work of the church is unstoppable. But are you a part of the work? Because before Jesus ascended to heaven, he left us with a great commission. He said, go into the world and make disciples. He charged us to be the church, not just do church, but be the church. He charged us to be that unstoppable force, but it's his work, my hands. In other words, he's the foundation where the stones used to build. He's the builder, we're the tools. He makes the plans and we execute. And he's called out the person in front of you to work through. He's called out the person behind you to work through. He's called out the person on the right of you, the person on the left of you. But it's his work, my hands. Jesus said, I will build my church. Hashtag promise. Promise. See, God's plan is to build his church through us. He wants to work through us. His plan is to build his church through us. But what is this church thing really all about? Like, like, what is it? And the reason why we have to answer this question is because some people see the church as just a nice place to take their children to. So some people see it as just a place to go to on Sundays. So some people see it as a social gathering. And if we're really being honest, a lot of fellas see it as just a place to tag along with their wives or children to do the family thing. But the church is more than a place. The church isn't so much a place we come to, but it's a people we serve with. It's not so much a place we come to, it's a people we serve with. And throughout the New Testament, the term the church is mentioned 114 times. But it's almost never in the context of a set building, a set place. Because back then, if you were a Christ follower, you were persecuted. You were executed. So they did not meet in a set building. They met in different homes. So if it was a, a home in, in Philippi, then it was the church in Philippi. If it was the home in, in Corinth, then it was a, a church in Corinth. The church isn't so much a building, but a people. I can remember attending an even service. And I mean, this church I went to, the building was off the chain. I mean, it was on point. The steeple on top was amazing. 
The floors look like they waxed it every five minutes. I mean, this church was immaculate. But it didn't take long for my opinion to change about the church. Because everybody I came into contact with was as mean as a junkyard dog. I mean, you speak, they don't speak back. And I can remember standing in the doorway of the church for probably about every bit of two to three minutes. The usher was standing there for the same amount of time. I spoke to her when I got in. She didn't speak back. But now she stumbles over and she said, can I help you with something? Do you need help with something? And you know me. I said, yes. You know what you can help me with? You can help to pray for your strength that God allows you to speak back next time. Now, I know I shouldn't have said it, but if you didn't want to be there, why did you come? The church was immaculate, but the, the, the building doesn't make the church. The people make the church. And Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's letting us know that not even Satan can stop the work of the church. But hold on. Wait a minute. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Isn't the church the people? Y'all missed it. Because if the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, hashtag the people, then what God is saying is it doesn't matter what weapon is formed against the church, it won't prevail. It doesn't matter what weapon is formed against you, it won't prevail. Weapons may be formed on the job, but it won't prevail. Weapons may be formed at the schoolhouse, but it won't prevail because he promised that no weapon formed against you shall prosper and every tongue that rises up against you shall be condemned. I will build my church. Hashtag promise. Go to Nehemiah chapter one. Nehemiah chapter one. Because I can feel myself getting stuck there talking about the church. And we still got a little bit of ground to cover. I want you to see what God has set in place that makes the church unstoppable. Nehemiah chapter one. Oh, Lord. Now, this is Nehemiah praying. Oh, Lord, let your ear, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? And we'll get into that next week. Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's, Graves, lies, and ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, this is Nehemiah's prayer about his people and the Persian king. But before we begin to peel that back, let, let, let a little backdrop. The people of God, and remember the church is the people of God, but the people of God, they were in exile for years and years and years and years until a decree was given that allowed them to return to their home. And they returned to a city where the walls was in ruin. They returned to a city where the walls had been torn down and burned down and, and, and broke down. And Nehemiah hears about what happens. And what Nehemiah does next is our focus. Nehemiah prays. He prays first. But a lot of times when we're studying Nehemiah, we only focus on all the other prayers. 
We only focus on the prayer when he's already rebuilding. We only focus on the prayer when, when he faces the opposition. But before Nehemiah did anything else, before he even left to rebuild, he prayed first. He prayed first. He could have did anything else, but he prayed first. Because prayer is a first choice, not a second option. Prayer is a first choice, not a second option. Nehemiah prayed to God for the Persian king to have compassion. He prayed for him to be able to let him go. He prayed to God for the Persian, the, the Persian king to, to have compassion. And the Persian king approved him to go. The king gave his approval to go. And if I don't say anything else, that'll preach right there. Because if we're making application of this, we know Jesus to be king of kings. And Nehemiah prayed first. So when it shows us that he got the approval of the king, I'm not thinking about a Persian king. I'm not focused on a Persian king. I'm focused on the king of kings. Nehemiah went after the king first before he went to a king. Prayer is a first choice, not a second option. A first choice. And the reason why I said choice is because you have to make the decision. Nobody can make it for you. Husband and wives, your spouse can't make it for you. You, your, your, your parents can't make it for you. Pastor, uh, leaders, they can't make it for you. You have to make the decision to seek God first. But a lot of times what we do is we try to fix it ourselves. And when it all comes crumbling down, then we seek after God to fix it. Pastor put it this way. When it's good, it's good. But when things are going bad, we raise our fist to God and we say, God, fix it. We blame God. But the majority of the time, the predicament that we're in is because of a decision we made. I can remember when me and my wife, we moved into our house and my brother and cousin, they were there helping move the things in. And there were some totes that I knew needed to go in the basement, but I also knew I should have been carrying them one at a time, but I didn't. And, and fellas, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like carrying groceries in the house. I mean, you try to load up as many bags as you can to cut down on trips. You could be one bag away from busting a blood vessel. But if it means cutting down a trip, you'll chance it. And I knew I should have been carrying one at a time, but I didn't. I tried to be Superman, and I went from carrying the totes to laying on top of the totes. Let's just say I became very familiar with our basement steps. And when I got back upstairs, my brother and my cousin, they said, uh, where's the rest of this stuff going? I said, we're going to leave it right here in the living room. Praying deep down inside that they didn't hear the mishap in the basement. But I wasn't going to chance them steps anymore, not today. But because of a decision I made, I ended up flat on my face. And when you make the decision of not seeking God first, it's detrimental to your future. When you make the decision of making God a second choice, not a first option, you'll end up flat on your face. God should always be a first choice. Because understand this, you were his first choice. You were his first choice. Now, I know how much I love my children. But God chose you over his very own son. He chose you over his very own. Let that sink in. Too much for Sunday, isn't it? Because the Bible says he first loved us. That he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave up his only son for all of us. He turned his back on his only son for you. He turned his back on his only son for me. So when it comes down to the people of God, God should be a first choice, not a second option. Not a second option. Nehemiah prayed first. But for you to really understand the move of God and the power of prayer here, you have to understand Nehemiah's job. 
Nehemiah's job was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah's job was to taste test the king's drink for poison to make sure he wasn't poisoned. His job was to test the king's drink for poison to make sure there was no poison in there. And you thought your job sucked. So the king allowing him to go was a matter of life and death. So what Nehemiah did is he prayed first. But you know what Nehemiah didn't do? He didn't go to the king and say, ah, oh, king, uh, look here, right? Um, my, my people, their city is in ruin. Can, can, do you mind if I, I know it's a matter of life and death, but do you mind if I go and help them rebuild? Nine times out of ten, the king would have said no because it was a matter of life and death. But Nehemiah prayed first. He sought the king before he went to a king. But you'd be surprised how many of us try to fix it ourselves. And when it all comes crumbling down, then we seek after God. But can you imagine if we sought God first? Can you imagine if we made God a first choice, not a second option? How many mishaps will be avoided? How many no's may have been yes? How much a heartache will be avoided? God said, seek ye first in the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. Hashtag promise. Seek ye first in the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. That's a promise. God should be a first choice. Not a second option. Go to Nehemiah chapter 4. This is getting good. Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now when Sambalat heard they were, that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. Nehemiah is already there helping build the wall. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in the day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now, this is Nehemiah praying about his enemies. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captive. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah prays without ceasing. He doesn't just pray before he went, but now he's rebuilding the wall. Now he's come against opposition, and he continues on praying because the Father's house is a house of prayer. The father's house is a house of prayer. Nehemiah could have handled this plenty of different ways. I mean, somebody talking about you, blatantly hating on you right in your face. When I was younger, this wouldn't fly. Y'all know what I'm saying. Y'all know what I'm saying. Like you talking about me, you running your mouth a bit about me, I'll show you how to close your mouth. But Nehemiah prayed because the father's house is a house of prayer. So the question I ask you, ask you is what is your prayer life like? Do you only pray before a meal? Do you only pray when you wake up in the morning? Do you only pray, pray before you, you, you slumber? What is your prayer life like? My father's house is a house of prayer. Follow me. I'm going somewhere. Let me get my illustration up. Because when it comes to the church as a place pertaining to a place or the temple, it's known or described as the house of God. We, we pray every single Sunday for the Spirit of God to just take over the service. We pray every single Sunday for the Spirit of God to take over the atmosphere. We come to church because we know that's where the Spirit of God is. 
But the Bible also tells us that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is housed in us. So when Jesus says my father's house is a house of prayer, he's not just talking about a building. If the Holy Spirit is housed in us, part of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is housed in us, then when Jesus says, my Father's house is a house of prayer, he's not just talking about a building. To put it another way, if the church isn't so much a building, if it's not so much a place, but a people, then that means you're a church and I'm a church. So you should be a house of prayer and I should be a house of prayer. We shouldn't just pray before a meal. We shouldn't just pray when we wake up in the morning. We shouldn't just be praying before we slumber, but we should pray all day. We should continue on praying. Pray without ceasing. But people nowadays, they act as if prayer is a burden. Lord, help me. We, we act like it's something we put on a to-do list. And if we get to it, we do. And if we don't, we don't. But prayer is more than a to-do list. Prayer is a priority. If Jesus had to pray, why do we feel like we can get along without it? If he had to stay connected to the Father, why do we only call on him when we feel like it? Prayer is a lifestyle. It's a, everybody repeat after me. Say, prayer is a lifestyle. Now, me and my wife, we're on this diet thing. And we're eating right, losing weight. But for those of you that know me, you know I like to eat. And that feeling of liking to eat snuck up on me the other night. But here's what I did. I used my debit card. Wrong decision. Wrong decision because there's no such thing as low-fat Cheetos. No such thing. And my wife, she's, she, she's my fitness coach. She's actually uh, keeping me accountable. And I guess she just happened to pull up the bank account and she realized that her brother had been cheating on his diet. So she calls me in the room. She said, what is this? She pulls it up on the computer and said, what is this? As if she didn't already know from the numbers that your boy been snacking. But here's what I did. Even though I fell off, I got right back to the diet because it's now become a lifestyle. And when prayer has become a lifestyle, you, you, you may fall off. There may be some days you pray more than others, but you get right back to it because prayer is a lifestyle. You pray when you feel like it and you pray when you don't. Jesus prayed in between miracles. Before this miracle was prayer. Before this miracle was prayer. Before this miracle was prayer. So if you want to see something happen in your life, if you really want to see God move in your life, prayer is the option. Prayer is the option. When, when, I'm sure you know this story. I'm sure you know this story. When Jesus walked into the temple, he begins flipping over tables and saying, my father's house is a house of prayer. Now, I wish I would walk into my house and flip over a table. My wife would look at me like, okay, when are you going to pick everything up? My father's house is a house of prayer. He's seen them trading goods, selling goods, buying goods. And he said, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. What is your prayer life like? Is prayer a priority to you, or is it something you add to a to-do list? Is prayer a priority to you, or is it something that you just do when you get time. You just do when you get time. Prayer is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Verse 6. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I'll read it again. So we built the wall, 
and the, all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Now, I want you to lock into what really happened here. Nehemiah prayed about his enemies, but God, how he answered the prayer was to do a work in his people. He, he didn't affect the enemy. He did a work in his people. He gave them a mind to work. A mind. It was hundreds of people. He gave them a mind to work. You've ever been doing a group project? And I mean, you getting it done, you grinding it out, you getting it done. But a week before the project is due, you find out that somebody's been slacking. Somebody hasn't been pulling their weight. He gave them a mind to work because prayer causes God to do a work in us. Prayer causes God to do a work in us. And it's something we have to understand about prayer. Prayer is not for us to change God's mind. It's for us to align with him. It was God's plan for Nehemiah to go or else he would not have approved the king to approve him to go. He would not have uh, allowed the king to have compassion to approve him to go. It was God's plan. Before Nehemiah left, he approved. While he was rebuilding, he approved. And now he's come against the opposition and he prays. But God doesn't do anything to affect the enemy. He does a work in his people because it was his plan from the beginning to rebuild this wall before Nehemiah even went. It was God's plan. And now the enemy's there. And Nehemiah prays and God aligns his people with his plan that he had from the beginning. He gives them a mind to work. And if you drop down a little further, you find out that when the enemy was actually plotting to attack, it said we prayed. They all prayed. And a wall that seemed impossible to build. Understand this. They didn't have things that we have excavation equipment and dump trucks and things like that. They carried the stones. They had to use rope to pull the stones up. And this wall that seemed impossible to build, they built it in 52 days. Because when God does the work in us, the impossible becomes possible. When God does the work in us, he can change a world. Just take a look at the acts of the apostles. When he did a work in them, they flipped the world upside down. We can turn this community inside out. When God does a work in us, will the work be easy? No. Can you do it by yourself? No. But if you make prayer a first choice, not a second option. If you continue in that lane, you don't stop there, but continue on praying. Make prayer a priority. Pray without ceasing. God does a work in us. And when God doesn't work in us, we're unstoppable. A praying church. Is an unstoppable church. A praying church is an unstoppable church. Because prayer causes God to tap into us. We learn that from the upper room. When they were praying on one accord, the spirit fell like a mighty rushing wind. Prayer causes God to tap into us. And when he works through us, nothing can stop us. But what is your prayer life like? Do you see prayer as just something you do? Or a priority. Prayer is not something we can do, it's something we need to do. It's not something we can do, it's something we need to do. What is your prayer life like? Because a praying church is an unstoppable church. Now here's what I want to do as I close. I want every head bowed and every eye closed. And I don't want you to think about anything else. Clear your mind. Clear your mind. And begin to commune with God. Talk to God. Ask God what it is that he has for you to do. Just ask him. Because we are many members of one body. 
And if one part of the body isn't operating at its full capacity, the rest of the body has to compensate. What is it that God has for you to do for the church? Because it's revealed in prayer. Seek God.